Welcome to another session in our series of Crest PD Talk PD events. I'm Dr. Emma Morton, and I'd like to welcome everyone joining in today, whether you're joining us live in the Zoom, streaming on YouTube, or catching up later with the podcast. I'm speaking to you today from Vancouver, British Columbia, the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Slave-Tooth Nations. And wherever you're joining us from today, thank you for being with us. For those of you who aren't familiar with Crest BD, we're a research network dedicated to advancing and sharing knowledge on living well with bipolar disorder. And our members include academics, clinicians, people who live with bipolar, and their support network. And Crest BD has a long-standing interest in technology and using it to advance mental health care. Uh, in 2015, we launched two web-based tools to help people monitor their quality of life and learn relevant self-management strategies. In 2020, we responded to COVID-related physical distancing measures by launching this Talk BD webinar series. Uh, and we've used social networking platforms like Twitter and Reddit to host community engagement events with one very exciting event coming up that I'll talk about at the end of today's session. And of course, many of you have heard us talk about the app that we're currently evaluating to optimize quality of life in bipolar disorder, the Polaris app. However, while we believe that technology has a lot of promise for improving access to information and care, we are aware that this comes with certain challenges and risks, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So I'd like to welcome our guest speakers for today's session, Dr. John Torres, a psychiatrist and assistant professor at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, uh, who founded the Division of Digital Psychiatry. And we're also joined by Victoria Maxwell, a mental health educator and performing artist who was a member of the Crest BD Polaris App Development Advisory Group. So thank you both for joining us today. Uh, before we get started with the presentation, I'll start a quick round of introductions and then go over some housekeeping. So as for myself, I'm a researcher at the University of British Columbia, working with the Crest BD team since my PhD days in Australia. Um, and at that time, I was involved in evaluating some of the Crest BD websites. Uh, and at the moment, I'm helping support the team with evaluating the Polaris app. I'm also interested in developing resources to support people with bipolar disorder and healthcare providers in making informed decision about whether app use fits with their care. Uh, so that's work. But here at Crest BD, we try to practice what we preach about work-life balance and quality of life. Um, so I'll also be asking our panelists to talk about their hobbies or something non-work related, uh, as well as their roles. So on the theme of our talk today, technology, one of my hobbies is I enjoy video games, especially RPGs and um, small indie titles. And uh, I'm especially excited when I get to work games into my work, so I, talking about the potential of serious games to address mental health stigma. Uh, so I'll now pass the mic to Dr. Torres to introduce himself. We'd love to hear about where you work, as well as one non-work thing you do in your downtime. Yeah, so thank you for having me. It's nice to be calling in or well, the word is audioing in, in this digital world, but from Boston, Massachusetts. So rather far away, but again, it is the beautiful thing about digital technology. We can all connect and work together. So as you said in the introduction, the work that I and my team do really is trying to think about how different technologies can improve access and quality to care. And really think about both of those together, because if we all have phones, many people have a good internet connection. Not everyone, we have to recognize that, but if we all have phones or many of us have phones, the access in some ways is solved or is getting solved, but is that gonna be quality care? And is it actually gonna be something useful and helpful to people? So kind of looking at that balance between access and quality and how we get both, so we don't have to sacrifice one keeps us pretty busy kind of looking at this at this digital space and world it's I think it's snowing here in Boston Massachusetts I would tell you sometimes my hobbies are hiking or doing outdoor things but at least when we're recording this right now I feel like that's not true and sometimes you don't love the outdoors when it's slushy and melting and raining snow so it's it's not the best season in my way or I guess you can all tell I don't ski or, or snowboard or do winter sports so that, that's what my opinion of winter is 
Thanks, John. Well, fingers crossed for a change in weather soon, myself included, hoping to get back to hiking soon. Uh, Victoria, please tell us a bit about yourself and what you've been enjoying lately. Oh, thanks, Emma. Um, well, those of you who have uh, uh, joined us before, you know me. Uh, I'm joining you from Wilkwe, uh, colonially known as Half Moon Bay on the Sunshine Coast, just outside of Vancouver in British Columbia. Uh, and I have been a member of Crest for, well, really since its inception. So I've had the privilege of being a, a peer researcher and uh, also parts of different uh, research uh, studies and things like that, particularly uh, one of my one person shows that was um, studied in terms of its effect on decreasing stigmatizing attitudes. Uh, outside of this, I uh, work as a keynote speaker uh, and really enjoy that. And what I do for fun, uh, one of the things I guess it, it sort of blends a little with work, but it's still actually a lot of fun is I've finally gotten around, I've started writing. Um, a portion of my story, it's going to be uh, in a book form. And so now I'm just voraciously reading and listening to anything that has to do with book structure and dialogue and all those things. And it's, it's fascinating things that, you know, make sense, but you don't realize until somebody lays it out for you. And then when I'm reading books, I go, oh, look there. So um, yeah, so that's what I've been doing recently. Thank you, Victoria. I've been meaning to tell you, actually, I found a copy of your one woman show in the great Crest office cleanout. But on the topic of technology, I can't find a DVD player. <laughs> yeah, that, that one's um, old. <laughs> so today we also have our behind the scenes helpers, Caden and Bryn, who will be helping out with the chat and our Facebook page. Um, and as I mentioned, we've got people joining today from Zoom and YouTube, and we also had questions submitted beforehand. Um, so if questions come up in the, during the talk, please pop them into the Zoom Q&A or a YouTube comment, uh, and we'll get to them after the main presentation. Uh, but for the time being, I'll hand it over to John and Victoria to talk more about technology. Excellent. Thank you, Emma. I think we are given a pretty broad mandate, Victoria, to talk anything about technology. We should talk about rocket yeah. ships, we should talk yeah. about posters. <laughs> the scales, you know, anything. <laughs> it, 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 it's definitely a, a broad topic and even it's not quite related, but I think they're on chat GPT-4 now. Last week it was three. So this stuff is all changing pretty quickly as it's moving on. But I think Emma probably wants to talk about technology for bipolar disorders. I see her nodding going, please move out of it, people. <laughs> this is what we have to do. <laughs> but I quickly wanted to quickly just talk about two interesting scientific studies. And maybe we could just kind of, I'll review the abstract, and then we can kind of talk about what are the implications of them. As we know, each study is exciting. Each study has biases that's on a small population, but just to kind of get a sense of where some of this is going, where the Crest BD research is really going to fill in some of the gaps. And one of the ways when sometimes people try to ask me, like, what can technology do for bipolar disorder? I kind of put it into two categories, and really for any mental illness, right, for anyone listening, it's on one side, a lot of work that kind of all of us do and you guys all think about as part of the network is how do we help people understand what condition they have? If there is a diagnosis, when is it? And kind of monitoring it. When are people doing well? When do they need more help and recovery and support? And that's definitely important to kind of to, to monitor, to observe, to diagnose. And the other half, right, is we want to make sure once we figure out someone needs help, they get help, right? We, we, we don't want to have labels and say you have this or you're not doing well and go, you're not doing well, we're so sorry. We have nothing we can do. We want to say, no, we have all these accessible, scalable treatments. So it's almost like in a simplify, we say half the kind of question is how can we help people understand the condition, know what it is, know when they're recovering. And then if we know where people are in their journey, how do we help them? So one of the interesting ways is kind of thinking, could smartphones be used, right, and signals to help us understand where people are? If the phone maybe has some information on, say, how you're sleeping, how active you are, you can, of course, take surveys on the phone. Could that potentially help us understand where people are in their own journey? 
and again, when it's going well, when it's not going well, when you should get support. So there's an interesting paper, and I love the title. It's called Apps and Gaps in Bipolar Disorder. So clearly these folks thought very carefully at the title. It says, so Apps and Gaps in Bipolar Disorder, a Systematic Review of Electronic Monitoring of Episode Prediction. So again, I'll say again for people listening, Apps and Gaps in Bipolar Disorder, a Systematic Review of Electronic Monitoring for Episode Prediction. And it was published in, I think, late 2021 in the Journal of Affective Disorders. In essence, what they did is they looked through at least all the published literature and tried to see for different smartphone apps, different sensors, can that electronic data help us kind of understand people's experience and where they are on their journey at different stages of it. And in essence, what they end up saying in conclusion, they say, given the clinical variability in bipolar disorder, predicting mood episodes remains a challenging task. Emerging e-monitoring technology for episodic prediction in bipolar disorder requires more development before it can be adopted clinically. So in essence, they said, cool idea, we, we like it, but at least looking at the best evidence, we don't see it quite ready to work. The, the signals aren't there. And I wonder just Victoria, if we just like, do we think this potential makes sense? Does the story work? Is this just the wrong way? Do we have to keep going? Or what are we doing yeah. in this space? Yeah, I was really um, thinking about, you know, why people are even um, using it now, given that there's not a lot of evidence behind it. And I think sometimes, uh, like for me at least, uh, tracking my sleep or my mood phases, um, it, it uh, for me, I think it certainly helps know when I might need to do something more in terms of my wellness strategies or do something less and in my lifestyle. So, I mean, I think it'd be really wise to do more robust studies around, around this so that it can be adopted um, further and maybe brought into clinical treatment, because I think that's where the gap is, is that people are using these, but clinicians may be able to recommend them, but they're, it's not embedded in sort of traditional treatment plans. Yeah, I think it's true. It's not embedded. I'm thinking of a lot of the clinics. It's just really not embedded yet for perhaps the reason you said. We don't quite know what it means. But I think what you also said is very insightful in that it's kind of your patterns, right? And I'm thinking of a gentleman I work with, and we're looking at some of his digital data streams. And I asked him, I said, what, what, what do you make of this? And he said, oh, this is interesting, John. If you look at kind of what my sleep and step count is compared to my mood, this is what it means. And he knew exactly what it meant. And it led to a really interesting conversation where he was able to kind of help me understand what his experience of this was. And I don't think there's any machine learning algorithm. There's no AI. You cannot feed into chat GPT four or five. It really was kind of helping quantify and share what his experience was, was the data. But I, it's, and I wonder if it's going to be so personal, everyone's experience. What do you think, Victoria? Like, is that yeah. why is it so individual that? I, and to some degree, I mean, I think it'll, if there is any way of being able to create some kind of um, monitoring or something, it'll have to be really sophisticated because I'm thinking of all the different uh, influences that a person can have that affects mood or sleep. So for myself, I'm thinking like, if I feel like I'm going into sort of a low phase, um, I often like to see what are the factors so that then in the future, I can either, you know, not do them or amend them or something. So, you know, and that for different people, it can be all different kinds of things, argument with a spouse, but some people aren't married. So that wouldn't be the case for me if I had a drink or if I didn't have a drink and some people don't drink at all. So, I, I mean, I guess that's what designers are for that, that, they do that kind of, you know, real um, detailed kind of work, but I can think that it would be challenging to do for sure. Yeah, I wonder if that is just, yeah. So when you look at this research literature, when they try to look at things on average for the whole population, that's hard, right? Because I just said, like, if I need good weather to be happy and to go hiking, there's a freak snowstorm. It's hard for an algorithm to kind of say, well, people here 
had this weather and this weather. And again, I, I think we will get that sophisticated, but maybe today it really has to be used on an individual basis as part of a relationship between a care team and its new data. And yeah, that's what I, I really feel like is that if ideally, if you have a good working relationship with your health provider, it's an opportunity to, so, you know, work together in partnership and say, you know, these are some patterns I'm seeing. I don't know, you know, I'm stuck about what it could mean or, or what, what do you see or vice versa if somebody's able to look at it. Um, sometimes there's not a, a, not a lot of time, but um, uh it's I think it's still worth being able to summarize in a in a quick way to bring it to um, a health provider. No, I think it's a nice way to reverse kind of the clinic model, right? It's that the person says, let's use data. I'm going to show you data to understand it. I don't need you to interpret the test. I'm going to interpret it for you. So I just wonder if we've been approaching this backwards for a long time and we may move forward. So I think we can return to this in the Q&A question and answer if people have questions about different sensors and, and wearables and smartphone apps and, and things. But the second paper I think is very interesting. This one was published in JAMA Psychiatry rather recently. And the title is Effects of a Smartphone-Based Management Intervention for Individuals with Bipolar Disorder on Relapse Symptom Burden and Quality of Life a Randomized Trials. A lot of words. I'm going to say it again for myself. So Effects of a Smartphone-Based Self-Management Intervention for Individuals with Bipolar Disorder on Relapse, Symptom Burden, Quality of Life, a Randomized Controlled Trial. And I'll quickly summarize what kind of they did. And then, of course, the paper, one, there'll be in the chat, there'll be links to it. But I think they said, clearly, we don't want people to have relapses and illness. So now we're on the monitoring half of the conversation. So what if we supported people with a smartphone app to kind of help them have resources on hand, to have extra information to be useful? And as a good experiment, they said, you'll also get a coach to help you kind of use a smartphone app and you'll get usual care. And the other group would get kind of, of course, usual care and they'd also get a coach, but they would take out the smartphone app. So really one group kind of got this extra smartphone app to help see if they could delay people having negative, to having kind of relapse symptoms and the other group didn't get, get the smartphone app. And I'll read from the key points in the paper. So the author said the main question was, can a smartphone-based self-management intervention for bipolar disorder improve relapse risk, symptom burden, and quality of life? I'll add again, there was a coach to each arm because it was a study, but the smartphone app was unique. And they said the findings, they say, this randomized clinical trial of 205 individuals did not detect a decrease in the primary outcome of time to relapse for the smartphone-based self-management intervention. However, a significant decrease in relapse risk was observed for individuals in asymptomatic recovery, but not for higher relapse risk individuals. And they say meaning in their words, they wrote, results of the study suggest that further work is warranted to optimize the smartphone-based self-management intervention and confirm that the intervention decreases relapse risk for individuals in asymptomatic recovery. So it's an interesting paper. There's, of course, many ways to interpret it. One that I took is both arms did well overall. And I think what we saw is the group that got to, both arms got to coach and coaches are effective having human support. The added benefit of the smartphone app on top of having to coach was pretty small. And for people that were less symptomatic, that benefit was, it was still, it was a little bit better, but it's not transformational where I feel if we gave that, it would kind of transform people's lives. And I think it, it raises an interesting question of what is an effective way that a smartphone app can help people? What is the role of human support? Is human support so effective that you just need that and the smartphone just a way to deliver it. So I wonder, Victoria, this is a complex study with lots to discuss, but how how do you kind of tease apart some of these? To parts? be perfectly honest, I, I read the paper and I didn't understand a lot of it. The, the terminology was it was a bit like I'd have to dig into deeper and ask further. I mean, because I, I I guess I, on a practical level too, I'm I'm really interested in sort of um sort of app toolbox too like what are those things 
and and how do you find them too because there's so many of them um and you know how do you know if they're any good so yeah that's probably not to say that these studies aren't important but it's also like in the meantime as the those results uh come forward and be put into practice how, how do us who are dealing with it sort of find something that can support us currently yeah no i, I think it we do want to do research and find effective stuff but we want tools and solutions now and i think one our team also has been interested in what can you what could you go to the itunes or android store now we're not going to discriminate against iphone or android apple or iphone i'm doing it already android or apple phone owners all are welcome here but what could you go onto those stores and for less than $10, download and put on your phone today, right? Because that's really what matters is could you use it today? And if it's over $10, at least our team, we've talked to people and said, I don't want to pay that much for a app. So we built a website called mindapps, M-I-N-D-A-P-P-S.org. We thought the name was really clever. It's probably not very clever, but anyway, we, we had to pick a name. So we called it mindapps.org. But what we did is it's kind of a website where as you go onto it, basically presents you with different filters or questions. It says, how much do you want to pay? Do you want it to be totally free? Do you want it to be free to download? Do you want it to be a subscription? What condition do you want? Bipolar, depression, stress, anxiety. What level of evidence do you want? Maybe you want none, a lot. What level of privacy do you want? Hopefully you want a lot, but it's not my job to tell you what you want and it's kind of a fun interactive one anyone listening can go to mindapps.org and search it and see what's out there but my sense victoria is a lot of, there aren't at least right now again the, the work that emma and team are doing that app is not publicly available or yet but i haven't seen a lot that kind of i would tell people like specifically designed for bipolar in the market now like go for it this is great but i wonder what you seen or, or kind of thought about that's out there yeah i mean that's the thing uh i haven't really noticed anything specifically uh that's an app for bipolar there's lots of mood tracking apps um and so from my experience the app that crest is going to be doing is going to be one of the first if and if there are others out there i, I haven't found it um and so I think that's one of the drawbacks is because bipolar disorder in particular has very specific kinds of um, features uh, different than any other kind of mental illness, just like, you know, schizophrenia has different ones as well. So um, but that being said, I think that uh, apps in general, uh, even if they're just mental illness, I say just mental health apps can be proved like really um vitally important yeah i think so too and i'm going to try to do it's always risky a live experiment as we're doing this but i'm going to go to mindapps.org and i'm going to go to let's see if i can find the right buttons i'm going to go to cost and say i want to be totally free makes sense i don't want to pay money for this thing and then i'm going to go to developer type leave a blank engagement for clinical foundation I'm going to leave that blank as well and I'm going to go all the way down to supported conditions and see what is totally free for bipolar disorder and I'm only down to nine we started at 600 apps by putting totally free and bipolar 600 to nine I won't do the math but wow and the apps I'm getting are one is called bipolar test it's by the name I'm going uh one is called SRM Logger. One is called Bipolar Disorder Causes and Diagnosis. One another one is called Bipolar Test. One is called Up Depression and Bipolar something else. One is called Bipolar Disorder. One is called Bipolar UK Mood Tracker. And one is called Bipolar Disorder Treatment. And that's it. And yeah. one is made by Pineapple Studios called Pineapple bipolar disorder yeah yeah because that's the thing that I get a little bit concerned with when it's dealing with sort of my my health I really want some uh backing ideally um 
not always. I mean, a mindfulness app doesn't have to um, be that, but if it's going to be as um, intricate as sort of tracking moods or making suggestions for what I need, um, it would give me a little bit more confidence if it's uh, evidence-based, but it, it doesn't seem like there's a lot out there, particularly for bipolar disorder. No. And what's wild, if I add a third filter, all we've done is totally free, makes sense, bipolar. If I say, can delete my data, seems like a normal thing to do. We're down to two. We're down to two people. This is not a good situation. This is why we're down to, well, again, you, you can play this game at, I shouldn't say game. It's, 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 a, it's a sad reality of this is what the marketplace is offering people. But, but I think, Victoria, you kind of told us a suggestion or way out of it in that you may not need an app just for bipolar to help you kind of live, a, to kind of do the things you want to do. You, you could be able to maybe make your own app toolkit. Or what are your thoughts on that? If we're down to, we only have two apps on the market now. We don't love them. Yeah, yeah, I was actually going through it and, and it, it was still, you know, a lot of decisions to make around which ones to have, but the two things that are important to me are tracking my sleep um, and tracking uh, my mood. And so being able to find ones that are just general that are really good. And I think that it, when I was putting in uh, it, when it could be like no specific uh, mental health condition and it was for sleep ones ones uh, came up and and the other thing too is that some of the apps that I use really they're part of my toolbox but they're I wouldn't people wouldn't think they are it's like Spotify I music is a huge part of keeping me well I live alone so it really boosts my mood when I need to sort of do a little kitchen dance by myself you know and uh, I have a, a run keeper so that you know it, it's a bit of a gamification where it sort of tells me how how where I am in the pack of people that I am uh, in terms of how fast or how slow my pace. And so those are the things that actually, although they're not even mental health related, particularly um, contribute to my mental health strategies. Yeah. And so those are the things that I feel like are more accessible and are more fun really, and allow me to um, you, they, they encourage me to use them a lot more because they're part part of my sort of personality, my lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I think it, it makes sense. You said it's kind of like a digital toolkit that you, you yeah. put together and it's going to be different for different people. And in some ways, I think it's a new, I, I think your experience in kind of building a digital toolkit that works for you is really valuable because you can guide other people and say, look, let's build a digital toolkit that works for this person and this person. And it's going to be, could be different. But I think helping guide people to figure out what those tools are. And again, we're saying, look, it's not just a app for bipolar disorder. It's an app for wellness. It's an app for exercise. It's an app for diet. It's something for yeah. sleep. And it's it can an artistic like, app. yeah, like for finances too, like, you know, yeah. expense tracking, all that kind of stuff. And often there's communities there that you can um, feel supported by. Um, and, you know, there's lots of, sort of good tools within it. And so that's what I've found it's been, and it's, um, I don't know, I just find it a lot more fun too, because it's, you know, yeah. No, I think even dare I say some social media, some ways that people use social media for peer support are terrific. Like I think sometimes we say social media is always all bad, but no, right? There's some really great support groups in these communities yeah. that people access that are just wonderful resources. And it, it kind of shows you have to be careful, of course, what apps you find, what communities you join online. But if you do it well, I think you can put on your phone in your pocket or purse, like really great stuff yeah. as well yeah. there. But I think it does take someone to help sometimes guide you through it or to avoid some of the creepy stuff that's out there, right? Again, well, and, and also sometimes um, overlooking aspects. So, you know, uh, Emma, I was, you know, when you're talking about video games and things like that. So like on, on my phone, you know, I've got, it's super simple, but it's solitaire and whatever the word thing Majiggy is. And those are hard. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, and so, but being able to have someone uh, sort of bounce back and forth and looking at almost all domains of my life and being able to say, so do you need an app for this? aspect uh, do you want one if so 
what do you, you know, what's your goal or objective around that? And then help finding it. Because I think part of it is identifying the areas that I might want to sort of nurture a bit. And then potentially having someone or something like MindApp give me some choice, but not overwhelm me with 60 different ones that come up when you either Google or search or anything like that. Exactly. I, I will say before, I did ask ChatGPT for the very best apps for bipolar disorder. I, I'm not even going to say the answers. In its defense, <laughs> it was only trained up to like 2021. So yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kept up to date, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Again, another experiment you can all do at home is log on to the free version of it and ask it, but yeah. don't trust it. No, <laughs> no, for sure. John Victoria, thank you for that discussion. Did, were there any final key points you wanted to share before we moved on to Q&A? The only thing that I would say too is um, let yourself experiment with ones. Like if you're not totally sure, I mean, it depends how comfortable you are with giving people data and things like that. Um, but I find, you know, I could, I know I can always take it off my phone um, and uh, just being able to sort of see if it enhances my life. And if it doesn't take it off, if it does keep it on and all that kind of stuff. So it's an evolution. I think I would say even of the two papers that we briefly discussed, right, that the message was it could work, but we have to learn more. So I think everyone has a role in kind of helping us learn about this, what it could be. It's not a solved problem. I think we're all excited about it. But I think I would almost say if anyone's listening, it says I have a really cool way to use technology, like you should do it. Like this is like it's this is the time, the world and the place to, to do it in because no one else has kind of figured out the blockbuster way to make technology solve all these problems. And I think we, we need to help. So yeah. I think if you have ideas, go for it, reach out. Yeah, John, I think, I can't remember the name of the title, but um, one, one brief commentary that you wrote was really talking about how your team is listening to their patients in terms of how are they using apps already to kind of creatively manage and monitor their mental health. And that's where the, some of the real innovation in this field is coming from. And I think it's really going to come down to, like you said, the, the research does need to progress, but on a case-by-case -case basis, you know, the individual can, you know, experiment with what's out there and, um, you know, kind of make sense of that in the context of their therapeutic relationship. And um, yeah, that's that in kind of experiment, like Victoria said, be your own scientist. You'll probably move the research along as fast as we are. So exactly. Um, so we've got a, a fair few questions coming in. So um, we'll do our best to address as many of them as we can. Um, our first question coming through is, uh, social media and heavy smartphone use has been widely linked to anxiety and depression. By promoting mental health apps, could it actually cause more problems by increasing reliance on your phone apps and increasing screen time? Who wants to go first, Victoria, you or me? You, want to, do you, you might have some sort of um, science and study background, and then I can sort of add some personal anecdotes and that I and thoughts that I have about it. So I think there's increasingly there's a lot of studies that look at kind of social media or screen time exposure and look at mental health outcomes. But what's tricky is a lot of them kind of do it in a cross-sectional way, right? You kind of say, how do you feel today? What was your social media? But that kind of ignores two things, how we feel changes with time. And of course, it's hard if, if you guess your screen time, it's kind of hard to guess what it was for the last couple of weeks or days, right? You kind of want objective measures of it. And your phone can record it, your computer can record it. So a lot of the kind of literature to date has been based on these kind of cross-sectional studies that used a lot of self-report outcomes. So they definitely explained that people have a distress, there, there's a signal there. But if you look at the kind of studies that begin to look at over time or kind of try to use screen time metrics, it becomes a little more confusing. It almost becomes like a Goldilocks into three bears situation. By that, I mean, for some people, screen time social media really is helpful. It's supportive. For some people, it's just right. It doesn't make a huge difference. And for some people, it's really harmful. I think we've all seen that. And that's probably classically people on the extremes. 
And there's even newer research saying, well, how did we get into this Goldilocks situation where it's too little, it's too much, it's just right? It may be that people have different windows of vulnerability to social media or it really can have a negative impact in your life. So there's some research that says in adolescence and at different stages of brain maturity for young men and young women, social media is more harmful. It's kind of these windows of vulnerability as your brain is developing. And that could be one reason. But I think it's it's a complex story. I wouldn't want to tell people it's like smoking, right? Once you don't want to do it ever. I think we'd want to say it's a little bit more nuanced and we shouldn't shun social media or kind of, we don't have the data to do it, right? And I think we can all think of where it has been helpful. So that that's my, not quite a direct answer. No, no, no. Well, and one of the things that I always wonder is how do you define social media? Like when I think of social media, I think of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok, all those things. And I find that, yeah, I, those for myself, they're not that great. Like once in a while, the, the one thing that sometimes happens is when I reach out for support and I do get this influx of support around my mental health or something or any kind of um, issue that's going on, it's, it's incredibly helpful. But when I think of uh, other things like the apps that we were talking about, to me, that's a very different thing because I don't I, I don't do a social comparison unless, of course, it's like Runkeeper and I, I realize I'm like 535th in a, in a group of four to six K runs. Um, but uh, yeah, and so I'm really curious if they've ever parsed it down to that. But uh, because that's where I find the difference is that when there's an opportunity to compare myself to other people's lives and sort of Instagram yeah. lifestyles, that's where my um, self-esteem and my mood can be affected versus when I'm using my personalized digital toolbox, completely different experience. Yeah. No, I think the social comparison, there's a brilliant researcher at Rowan University, Danny Argo, who's beginning to look at kind of how technology can influence social comparison you go onto Facebook and look at people and say, I can't ever reach those people? Or do you kind of look at people and say, well, I'm better than those people? And when does it, it does make a difference, definitely. And we're still actually learning about when it is. But I think, as you said, Victoria, if we, if we can help people curate how to use technology and be smart about it, we can probably help people find some of the neutral or benefit part, or at least avoid the harmful parts. Like for my example, personally, I'm not on Facebook. Yeah. I find it helpful. I think it was probably making me feel not great. Yeah. I did delete it. I've probably lost contact with some people, but I think helping people again make those smart choices about what is the digital toolkit they want to use and what is yeah. exposure they want is probably a good balance. And going back to the diet analogy, if you eat everything and all then it's not going to be great. If you're like, I need to be on every social media. So, so I think moderation may be the key and it's hard to moderate, right? I mean, yeah, it's yeah. Valid. I think it sounds like you found a pretty cool way to find the right digital toolkit for you. Yeah. And it's also likes and dislikes, like what kind of social media do I like? Like Instagram is a lot about photos and things like that. And that's not how I capture my experiences. I'm a writer. And so Facebook allows me to write more. And so those things, TikTok. I don't even want to go near that at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point that the both of you are making that, you know, rather than kind of putting this blanket label on social media as helpful or unhelpful, it's looking at how you feel when you use it and like really getting into the nuance of what is it about this that is maybe unhelpful or helpful for me. Yeah. Um, our next question, uh, I know mood tracking helps, but are there other things that people should track for bipolar disorder that are also proven to help? I mean, I'll say in our clinic, we, we do have people, again, that they have to want to do it. We're not going to force anyone to do anything, but we have people sometimes track their symptoms. We work with people with all diagnosis. And what we found is for some people, tracking can build emotional self-awareness and it can be very helpful. And so people actually begin to learn their trends and we actually can measure kind of levels of emotional self-awareness and that can be very therapeutic in itself. We've also found there's some people that don't have high levels of emotional self-awareness. It's very hard for them to understand their patterns even when they're, they're seeing it. And there's different pathways, right? There's kind of different ways to make people better. But for people that are kind of, 
uh, people with higher emotional self-awareness, I think it could be really great. But again, for some people, it just doesn't make a larger difference. And we can help them again with motivation or other factors. It's not, it's just one tool among many tools to do. But I think as a clinician, again, I usually just like when people help me understand kind of their tracking and what it means to them. Because I said, it's as we talked about earlier with Victoria, and it's it's so personal, right? The context of what's happening, what these signals mean. Because if I don't have a lot of steps one day, is it that I stayed home and had a wonderful family event? It, it was just great. Or was I like isolated in my room? The, the digital signal is like low steps still. So, so we, I think tracking doesn't mean the person's voice isn't there. It just means that we want, we have context, understand the person's experience. And I think we keep that in mind, tracking becomes really helpful as a way to kind of collaborate. And Emma, was it, uh, was the question asking sort of what things other than mood to track? Is that what? Yeah, that what right? other things might you use technology to track? I know some of the things that I um, stay aware of is my uh, financial tracking. And so, of course, like what you were talking about with context, if it's uh, Christmas time or holidays or near someone's birthday, my my expenses will go up. But uh, knowing when there's sort of a tendency to shopping online, tracking, that kind of thing. Uh, sleep has been really important. Eating uh, as well, like um, more uh, sort of late night eating, things like that. Tracking when I, if I've done that uh, several days in a row, sometimes it's not a big deal, but if it accumulates. And so it's sort of knowing myself, knowing the context, and then looking at uh, being able to sort of, um, track it in terms, and then because I know the context, I know if I'm headed in one way or the other, like recently I, I wasn't sleeping that much and I was getting up um, really early, but I was feeling fine. I wasn't going into hypomania. I wasn't going into a depression. So I didn't feel like I needed to make an appointment with my doctor. So. Mm. Yeah, I think, oh, sorry, John, were you about to say something? No, I said, maybe even to answer your question directly, as a good psychiatrist, I can avoid answering a question. <laughs> it's what you said is, I, I think there's there's a U.S. kind of, there, we've all heard probably the NIH, there's also SAMHSA, which is a different U.S. health organization, but they have eight dimensions of wellness. It includes kind of emotional, environmental, financial, intellectual, occupational, physical, social, and spiritual. And sometimes also we look at that when I meet with people and say, which ones matter to you? And again, for some people, spiritual is very important. We, we want to kind of make sure where that is. So I think it kind of gets to also what you said, Victoria, people, it matters dramatically. And those eight dimensions are pretty broad, right? You said like social, oof, it's a lot you could track there. You don't need to track everything, but it doesn't always have to be, my mood is up, my mood is down today. That's a, a great point. Actually, it might be a good opportunity for us to plug uh, a quality of life tool from CrestBD, which which measures, again, those dimensions of wellness that have come up as relevant to people with bipolar disorder. Because when we were looking for resources for our Polaris app, um, we, we ran a survey asking people what apps they use to support each domain of quality of life. And, you know, there were apps for every category. So um, that might be a, a kind of useful tool to um to, to guide your thinking yeah and I find with the quality of life uh tool there are those resources that are suggested and action steps once you sort of get your results which is really great particularly if you're in sort of a, a phase where you're not feeling well and you know it's hard to sift through things or even read a lot this is like really short little um snippets that are really I find really helpful um, I think the next question is really important for us to address when talking about technology and bipolar disorder because of the potential risks in how they might intersect. Um, so this, this particular individual is asking, technology creates potential for more destructive behaviors when manic or depressive. Should people experiencing manic episodes be using apps at all? I've done some destructive things on my phone when I'm manic, like sending text or posting things on social media or overspending. Do you advise people to not use apps at all when in an episode or only use apps when well to track symptoms?
Do you want to lead us off on that one? Victoria? Oh, I sorry, John. I thought the question was for you. Um, well, I have to be very disciplined. Um, uh, if texting is the one thing where I, I can go off the rails a bit. So I, if I know that I'm, particularly if I'm hypomanic, so if I know that I'm feeling that way, then usually I'll tell somebody um, and then uh, lay off texting and do that sort of, uh, what is, I don't know, it's something, something in delay um, where I have a, you know, I don't jump on the idea if I feel like I want to um, text somebody. So um, I think to some degree, any of that is helpful. And then when I get more stable to be able to sort of use it um, sparingly and then gradually go back to regular use. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think we, in this digital world, things can happen quickly. You can order food very quickly now, right? For most places, you could probably order something halfway around the world very quickly. And I think, I don't know if it's unique to technology per se, just in, in a world we live in, right? There's a lot of things spread very quickly with, with all of the interconnections for, for better or worse. So, so I think it's, I mean, I'm just thinking on the flip side or playing a devil's advocate, right? If you have a really good support group that can help you, you may want it the most when you're not feeling well. And maybe if, again, if you find there's music or just kind of a thing you can do that technology guides you for to help you better, you, you want it the most there. But if there's going to be things that get you in trouble, it, it's a balance in that way. But I think it, it doesn't even matter if it's bipolar or not bipolar, right? It's just people, it's... I think a lot of people have done silly things on technology, regardless of any illness status, right? Or been, so, so I think it's yeah. a hard world we live in. It is. And I, I think also it's about being selective too. So being able to, so I sort of know staying off Facebook is really good for me if I'm unwell. Texting, although knowing if I'm texting impulsively versus texting a friend who's willing to support me is so that I'm in contact and they they know how I how I'm doing. And then, you know, like you said, being able to still use um, uh, Spotify, all these other things. So to me, a lot of it is about just recognizing the risk involved. So the ones that are more public and social, those are the ones that I usually um, um, watch for. And I think it's really, really individual um, because if you like, I don't tend to spend a lot of money. So I don't have to worry about if there's, you know, shopping apps on my phone or anything like that. Um, but other people who do, uh, that might be something that they want to take off their phone, things like that, so. Yeah, I think this is a really um, important question, but obviously one that's going to have really personalized responses like John and Victoria are bringing up. And, um, you know, I'm thinking back to, um, the advice that we've gotten for managing risks to do with credit cards, you know, obviously that's made impulse spending a lot easier. Um, but after a while, you know, we were able to draw really useful suggestions from people with lived experience, like putting your credit card in ice and putting caps on your daily spending. And I think we're going to see, um, again, that peer support element be really important in providing those suggestions about, you know, what apps can you use that block the amount of time you spend on particular things or outside particular hours limit your access to social media. So um, I, I do hope that there's a way to collect those suggestions in, in the coming years. Um, we've got a lot of questions on chat GPT, actually, John. So uh, I'm going to pick one of them to tap into that, that field. <laughs> what is your view of artificial intelligence's role in the future of mental health therapy? I think we're going to have to discover it together, right? This is not, I don't think, I think anyone that tells you they're an expert on it or has figured it out, I would not believe them. I think, again, we're all seeing what it does. We're all probably testing it. We're all curious. But I do think one of the analogies I like that I read somewhere was it's kind of like Wikipedia right now, right? It, Wikipedia did not, it was useful, but right? it helped put information. You could access it. You could look stuff up. There's a risk of misinformation. Someone could put wrong information on Wikipedia. 
but generally it made information more accessible for people. They could understand things and it was a positive thing. It didn't, of course, again, change how you'd want to manage your illness per se, right? It just made it more accessible and you, you could understand it. So I wonder if in some ways it'll be a great thing because we can all again have information more accessible in the format we want. I don't know if it's really going to become a therapist that quickly because the hardest type of conversations are therapeutic conversations, right? You have to understand the context, the person in front of you, the alliance, the illness. And so I think it's one thing if a chatbot can kind of have a very superficial conversation with you, but can it really kind of have a deeper one? If anything, I think that'll be the last thing that kind of it gets to. So it's, I don't think anyone is listening as if they're a peer support specialist, you're not going to lose your job to this. Have yeah. no fear. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, so I, I mean, I, and I can't speak for it. I haven't explored it that much, but I, I recently heard a, um, on a podcast about um, a few individuals who have used sort of, I guess, I mean, they were calling them AI companions. And similarly, like it gave them a sense of not feeling so alone. And it wasn't therapeutic in terms of a psychiatric or psychologist, but there was some therapeutic value in it for them um, because they sort of created, although it was an artificial relationship, it was still a sense of being able to even practice some social skills. Um, but I can't speak for it. Um, there might be people in the audience that have, and I'm sure there's uh, pitfalls uh, with that as well. Um, uh, so, but uh, I thought it was uh, interesting. I think we might have time for two quick more questions. Um, and uh, <laughs> this one's perhaps more of a statement than a question, but I think perhaps it will be useful, John, if you can point out some resources that maybe this individual can share. Um, so psychiatrists and mental health teams in particular need training and technology. Um, why is this so? Mine are clueless to apps and have no idea how many people are using it or even if they help. Um, so are there other resources that we can give to people to uh, help educate their psychiatrists and their treating team about the potential here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to be fair, right? We Clinical teams have to learn this as well. It's, it's a new world. And again, none of us are excluded. And I think one reason some clinical teams have been slower to adopt this is, again, we, we kind of looked right at the beginning, what was available for bipolar today on the stores? And we were like, that doesn't look great. So I think clinical teams want to give people resources that are evidence-based that work really well. And, and when they kind of look at the evidence, they go, it's not here yet. Maybe I should focus on other things, right? But I think one thing you can do is, again, give them a website like MindApps and say, look, let's talk. Again, I think you can bring to them resources. I think this is helpful because of this. And here's what you should do. So I think in part, if clinical teams aren't sure, you can help them learn by being gentle, we're, we're sensitive people too, <laughs> but by gently saying, here, here's some great resources, here's how I'm using it. And again, I think if your clinicians are hearing that, the clinical teams, they'll want to use it. But I think in part, the research hasn't kept up with it. And again, we have seen some of these things are harmful. Some of us may have seen kind of the evidence on Cerebral, that US company that was doing this. So I think there's been enough harms that people have been a little bit worried about going too fast and clinicians, again, you don't want your clinician to be so avant-garde that you're like, I've never tried this in anyone else before. You're going to be the first person ever. It could be good or really bad. Like no one wants that. So, so I think in essence, I think the clinicians are ready. They're open to it, but maybe sharing those personal experiences of what you're doing may actually go really, really far in, in helping them move forward. And I think I'm biased because our team is Behind Mind Apps, we, we don't make any money off it, but I think it's a nice way to say, look, here's some apps and let's search for them, not based on stars, based on things like privacy and cost and conditions. Yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like the more of us that go to our clinicians with apps that we found helpful, then it, there'll be a tipping point at, you know, at some point because you know clinicians are talking with each other. Uh, it might not work quite that way, but I feel like, you know, the, it, the more that 
we're bringing it to their attention, um, there has to be some agreement that um, we're finding it effective personally, even if the evidence hasn't caught up yet. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I think, I mean, the CRESS BD team is doing a pretty good job in the academic sphere as well, advocating and helping people understand across the world how these could be useful. So I, I, it's, I think those surveys some of you may have taken really do have an influence of just showing people what is the voice and what are it doing? So it, 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 it takes time, but it's, it's, it'll change. Thank you, John. Um, I've got, I think we've got time for really quick answers to a final question. So I'll just ask both our panelists to keep their responses to this one brief. <laughs> um, so we've got a question, couple of questions about um, online peer support using apps. So what is your opinion about online support groups for bipolar disorder? I think it depends on who's moderating it, right? Oh, that's a good short question. I mean, answer. <laughs> um, yes, I wasn't uh, expecting it to be that quick. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I um, I think they're great. I think, it, like you, there should be a caveat that um, not all online groups are created equal, um, but don't just go to one. If you don't like it, sort of write it off. Go to three, like just commit to sort of going to three and seeing if you like the format. Um, some people work with it, some people don't, but I think it can be very valuable uh, because it's often, if people have at least a computer and a camera, it's accessible. Um, and uh, I think that's one of the, the most important things, so. Thank you both for your responses to that one. I think, you know, that peer support element is, um, and that social support is a, a thread that was coming through really strongly when both of you talked about the potential of apps. So I thought that was a, a good way to wrap up the questions. Um, so with the time that we have remaining, I'll just quickly run through some resources. Um, so we've mentioned a couple of times that the Crest BD team has been working on their own app, um, the Polaris app. Uh, we expect this to become available to the public in late spring 2023, so please do look forward to that, and you can get updates about when that will be coming out by signing up to the Crest BD newsletter. Um, the rest of the resources and links mentioned in this episode, including John's Mind app uh, library, can be accessed by visiting our Talk BD webpage. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, the Crest BD team is also working to uh, evaluate, um, oh, sorry, we, you can also access our Bipolar Wellness Center, which is the other website that I talked about, Crest BD, um, and the quality of life tool can be linked to through there as well. Um, Crest BD is looking at ways that we can increase understanding of um, informed decision-making about apps among both people with bipolar disorder and their clinicians, as was fairly pointed out by one of the questions. And if you'd like us to help us in that effort, um, please do consider participating in this study. Uh, we are evaluating a brief five minute video aimed to help uh, people think through decision making about apps. Um, and it's about a 20 to 30 minute survey. So if you have the time to spare, um, that would be massively appreciated. And there's also a gift card up for grabs. Um, I also mentioned that we have a Reddit event coming up. So on World Bipolar Day, uh, we hold our annual Ask Me Anything on Reddit. And this year we have over 60 panelists, including academics, uh, people with lived experience and clinicians, including John and myself, signed up to answer your questions. Last year we got over 600 and this year we're hoping for more. So please do consider joining us. Our next Talk BD event will be about disclosure in the workplace and bipolar disorder with Dr. Bradford Biddeley, and that will be on 6pm Pacific time, April the 3rd. Um, all of our previous episodes are available for viewing on the Talk BD website where you can sort by topic or presenter and see all of the previous resources. You can also listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Uh, and you can also watch them on the Crest BD YouTube. Um, for those of you joining through the Zoom, when you leave today, a survey will pop up asking about your experiences. Um, and we really appreciate feedback about both this event and your suggestions for future topics. 
Uh, and you can also visit our Crestmedia website for updates about our research um, and consider signing up to our newsletter, as I mentioned, for updates about the Crest app or any research opportunities. I would like to thank this opportunity, sorry, take this opportunity to thank our funders and partners, as well as everyone who's joined us here today. So once again, thank you to all of our attendees, um, those who submitted questions, sorry, we couldn't get through them all. And thank you so much to John and Victoria for joining us today and sharing your insights on this topic. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you all. Bye. Thanks, Thanks. for attending. Bye. Until next time, stay healthy and well. Bye.